I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. The Diving Deep EDU podcast aims to have thought-provoking conversations that help listeners dive deeper into educational practices with a focus on teacher retention, recruitment, and burnout. Subscribe to the Diving Deep EDU podcast newsletter to get more information about this podcast and other topics. Link is in the show notes. Our guest today is Eric Sarb. Eric taught middle school math and science in Chicago and San Francisco for six years before pivoting to the ed tech sales world. He's worked at various levels in sales, completed multiple policy fellowships, and worked part-time in education leadership development. Eric lives in Oakland, California, and has stayed mostly sane inside and outside the classroom by always playing in a punk or metal band on the side. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I want to start the conversation off by you telling us a little bit more about the work you're currently doing. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I currently am working in sales at Soundtrap for Education. Um, Soundtrap is a part of Spotify, but sort of Mm -hmm. operates uh, almost as a startup within Spotify, um, made up of a lot of former teachers. uh, And Soundtrap is a DAW, which stands for Digital Audio Workshop. Uh, You might be familiar with GarageBand or heard of Pro Tools that uh, more professional engineers use. But it's uh, a way to record audio and edit and all of those things. Um, and so, yeah, Soundtrap is also collaborative. So it's imagine like uh, Google Docs meets GarageBand and hmm. um, it's pretty accessible. So um, <clears throat> in 2017, uh, I believe, is when they said, hey, this would make a lot of sense for schools. Um, so music programs use it uh, and all kinds of teachers use it for podcasting or really any yep. type of audio project. This isn't a, a product just for schools, though, right? I've seen it in other people using it. Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm not sure about the numbers or the breakdown, but the uh, music maker edition is mm-hmm. is sort of like any any person can use it. And then there's like a, a paid version that gives them access to all kinds of loops and yep. um, things that are pre-recorded. Um, and so, yeah, many people use it, they use it to collaborate. So someone in Chicago could go on and write a guitar riff and say, I need some drums behind this. Who wants, you know, to collaborate and work with someone over in, in Europe or, or Asia, you know? Um, so that collaboration piece goes a lot further, uh, with the, uh, music maker kind of personal account, uh, than it does in education. We, we can only have kids collaborating within their school for safety okay. reasons, but, okay. um, yeah. So what are, what are some cool things that you're seeing students use this platform? One of those that I is top of mind. I was speaking with a teacher in new Orleans who's been working with his third graders and, oh, okay. um, yeah, they've been studying. He's a history teacher and having students study about self-emancipated slaves and mm. students are creating songs about the self-emancipated slaves that they are learning about. 
Um, so really being able to integrate music creation into any content area is one way that I think is really exciting. I know I like as, a, as a science teacher, we gave students choices of, you know, you yeah. can make a presentation about this element you're learning about, or you can make a rap song. And, you know, yeah. my kids recorded it on their their audio with just like a beat playing in the background on their iPhone mm. and then played it and it sounded, you know, pretty fuzzy, <laughs> uh, but it was still really cool. And I was like, you know, this would be if we actually gave them a decent mic and mm-hmm. sound trap, you know, with, with pre-made beats and ways to mess with uh, volume and things like that, you know, the quality would be a lot better, maybe something that they, they would be more proud sharing. So um, love the music connection in the content yep. areas and then really giving students the, it as a tool for any type of thinking that they want to share, you know, instead mm-hmm. of a, a student writing it, they might not feel comfortable with the written word as much as they are with spoken word. Um, I think even down to like motor skills, some kids were okay. just really struggled with a, a pencil, you know, but yeah. saying, Hey, you can use Soundtrap or, um, you know, pot, uh, podcast for this assignment. Um, anything that you would write out an essay, you could say, on a podcast and you could add, you know, a little intro with music or sound effects that um, lets you express yourself a little bit more within the curriculum. So uh, those are kind of two of the big ways that, that I see it being used that excite me. Yeah. I love, I love those, those creative ways. And I love that you brought it, you know, it'd be really cool within a music class, but I love how you brought it into a different curriculum, into that history class or thinking about in a science class, how they Mm -hmm. can use it to express their learning and show what they they have learned that's that, yeah that's that's really exciting at school i am familiar with soundtrap i wasn't familiar with the education platform so i'll have to check that out yeah well. i figured with your your podcasting background yeah. you would probably stumbled across soundtrap and um yeah you could definitely yeah. record uh collaboratively a podcast is the other thing so it was big in the pandemic when yeah. students were at home a lot yeah. of school school districts adopted it pretty quickly um mm-hmm. so that students could collaborate with their teachers and other students in the class and uh, record a, a podcast together from their homes. Yeah, that's neat. And that collaborative feature is also uh, unique to that. I mean, there's other pieces that might do something similar, but I like that as well. So mm-hmm. being collaborative and creative and having the students express themselves, that's that's really cool. And Eric, you also have uh, a music background. So maybe that's what brought you to Soundtrap. And that's uh, right. tell us a little bit more about, about your music playing and being in a punk and metal band. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the instruments and the style of music you like. Yeah, so I, I think my parents really insisted that I, I learn music at a young age and we had a piano in the house and I tried two rounds of piano lessons before I was like, yeah, I really don't like this. Um, and then I saw, you know, Tom DeLonge and Blink-182 uh, playing guitar on stage and I was like, that's what I want to do. And so mm-hmm. my parents, you know, uh, borrowed a guitar from another family friend that wasn't playing it. And they're like, we'll see if you like this first. And I, um, I totally took to it, you know, between that and Billy Joe Armstrong, Green Day, I was like, those are my idols. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I took guitar lessons and started making music with friends by the sixth grade. Um, you know, if you could find a drummer in your classroom, that was a huge deal. And I found one and, we started doing covers and just uh, writing some of our own songs by seventh grade and, you know, performed in the talent show in eighth grade. And I just thought about what that did for my development and my pride Mm -hmm. and my identity. Um, 
And, you know, we would talk about these things in school, but there wasn't really a, a connection with it. Um, so that's one thing that especially excited me when I thought about the soundtrack music connection in the classrooms. Um, I did end up taking, uh, like, a I was in choir in high school at one point. I joined jazz band a couple of years, uh, in high school, um, but really wasn't like into like the orchestra or anything like that. And I was just playing always in some punk or metal band with my friends. And um, that was really just like what I got excited about as a high schooler. I think I had one teacher that uh, taught a physics lesson on waves using (laughs) harmonics on a guitar. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. Um, And so, but just like there, I wasn't bringing that part of my identity or expressing that in school too much. Like we'd have a talent show here and there and get to show it off. Um, but uh, I just thought, wow, that would be so cool um, to have students, you know, express this part of themselves in in the classroom. And then when I went to college, you know, I, I really kind of stepped away from it. I found people to jam with here and there, uh, but it's hard when you're living in the dorms and so forth. Uh, but as soon as I started teaching in Chicago, I went on Craigslist and I was like, I need to find a drummer. I got to find someone to jam with. You know, this is... <laughs> the hardest job I've done. I need this outlet. And so, yeah, I found, found a guy that I I played with that year. Um, eventually other opportunities came along. I even like one of my students, older brothers wanted to jam and I was like, sure, I don't have anyone to jam with and ended up starting a metal band with, with him and some of his friends, um, in Chicago and was always in like a couple bands and, uh, yeah, it just was one thing that really kept me going where I could just like leave school and go play music for a couple hours yeah. and, and really shut off and uh, release that way. Because as I'm sure, you know, and we'll probably get to later, it's hard to shut that part of your brain off when you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just always thinking about what's going on tomorrow. What can I do for that kid or this kid? Um, and so it's been a really great outlet. And to this day, I, I still play in a couple bands. One of them's metal, one of them's punk. They're my good friends. And uh, you know, hope to do a little tour at some point, uh, two or three days long. But uh, other than that, it's just a fun hobby. And I play guitar in both those bands and sing and scream, which is a great way to yeah get the energy out. Yeah. So what is it about metal and punk that, that drew you to that style of music? Uh, I think teen angst. Um, <laughs> just like I, Linkin Park. I first heard a song on MTV shout out to MTV when they really played a lot of music videos, uh, heard the song crawling and he was yelling and I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's touching some part of me that I, I need to be in touch with. Um, yeah. And as an adult thinking about like how I was not being talked to about the emotions I was Mm -hmm. feeling as a kid, you know, because not every household has the, the skills or like the emotional awareness to talk to their, their preteen or teen about what they're going through. And, you know, that's just like a cultural thing, I think as well, which is changing. But, you know, when these uh, loud screaming songs came to me, it was like, this is an outlet. Like, this is kind of how I'm feeling and I don't know how to feel it. And so this is helping me with that. Um, And I think a lot of uh, people who were also into that scene also had some, some stuff going on emotionally. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just one way that we could all, vibe with it together and be like, Oh yeah, we're, we're into this. Not everyone's into this, you know, uh, which certainly wasn't what the quote unquote popular kids in middle school uh, were listening to. 
Uh, mm. Maybe a little bit of Blink-182, but um, yeah, no, for that, it's kind of the emotional content behind yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, I can feel that. Have you ever heard of uh, Black Flag, the group? Oh, dude, have I heard of Black Flag? <laughs> the godfathers of hardcore, yes. So so I I wasn't into punk uh, or, or metal, not, not to have anything against it. It just wasn't my style of music. And recently, a friend of mine would have had the reaction you just had, you know, with, with Black Flag. And so... Henry Rollins was was nearby and he was doing a um, speaking tour yeah. near us. So he bought me a ticket. He's like, you got to come. So I went and <laughs> it was a really amazing experience. So then I, I get his book, you know, get in the van and I start yes. like, reliving the early days oh, of like God. Black Flag and listening to some of the music, which which I never really knew but that that was really interesting to, yeah. to better understand it now and then i started listening to henry rollins a little bit more he's doing a lot of speaking now he says he can't yeah. sing because he'll like uh hurt himself yeah i've caught his uh speaking tour at least once and he actually would do the hardly strictly bluegrass festival here in san francisco oh wow like a funny okay. funny thing but i listened to get in the van uh the audiobook which he reads himself and it is a mm -hmm. funny thing to listen to because he's so intense Yes, um, very yeah, the punk scene was just wild. Like, I'm glad I was not a part of that in the 80s. Like, they were just like throwing bottles at each other and like a lot more violence, but not in a fun way. Yeah, it uh, seemed like over the top. It seemed like he wanted to be like punished or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, the relentless touring, the DIY yeah. mentality, like, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. certainly set the model for the rest of the bands that I, a lot that I still love today that are making it happen. So a lot of gratitude yeah. for them. Yeah, it was cool. And that's one thing my, my friend brought up that it's the DIY mentality. It's the like, we're, we're not mainstream. We're going to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And I could definitely get that from, from the book. And also interacting with people at the uh, speaking tour, they, they definitely didn't want to do things, you know, like mainstream or something like that. So Eric, you taught, you know, like you've mentioned, and, and I mentioned in the, the intro, you taught middle school math and science in Chicago and San Francisco. As you think back, and there are probably many reasons but what were some of the big reasons that caused you to want to teach? Um, I actually worked at a summer camp in Gaylord, Michigan. It was an all boys Catholic summer camp when I was in college and um, with uh, our mutual friend, Mike Dunn. Okay. Mike um, Dunn. Yeah. Mike Dunn. Shout out. Fun fact was my counselor at that camp. The one year that I went when I was like 12 and I was like, this guy's got a guitar. He, he, he's talking about Tenacious D. Like, this guy's cool. Uh, he was fun. And uh, yeah, so what we reconnected, you know, when I was a counselor mm. there and he was coming back and we both worked at the Corral, uh, right, teaching horseback riding. Um, I also taught a break dance program there. But I uh, worked with the intermediate group, which was kind of the middle school age, like yep. uh, 11 to 13. And I super enjoyed that age. You know, they were still like, hey, we just want to have fun. And like, we're positive, but like, mm -hmm. you know, so we'll kind of listen to you, but like, we'll kind of push the boundary. And I was just like, this is a cool age. And so um, I also had had like someone, I don't know if it was like a therapist in college. was like, I think you'd make a great professor. And like that kind of stuck with me. Mm -hmm. um, and so Teach for America was reaching out to me my senior year of college, and I was studying urban planning at the time, and I was pretty passionate about it and had some experience in it with internships. I was like, I'm going to do this in Detroit, and I'm going to be a part of this revival that's happening. And Teach for America is for people that don't know what they want to do. So like, I'm not going to 
apply to that because it was like a really brutal um, job market and when I was graduating still in 2011. And yeah. so there were a lot of people that were like, yeah, I don't really know what else I'm going to do. And um, so I'll apply to TFA. Um, they kept on emailing me and I finally was like, I'll just take this meeting and then they'll stop emailing me. And they, <laughs> those recruiters are really good at what they do. They were like, yeah, this is really important work. Um, what's the difference with you being an urban planner for 40 years or 38 years? Like, just make the two-year commitment. And I was like, you know oh. what? You're right. And I was like, I enjoy working with kids. And if I can get middle school, that'd be awesome. And if I can even impact the trajectory of like one or two kids, we'll call it worth it. And, you know, I bet I could do that. Um, and so, yeah, I applied. I got in. They told me Detroit uh, would be an easy get in. Um, you get to rank the cities. Uh, after you're accepted, you rank the cities that you would like to teach in. And my recruiter said, no one's like really requesting Detroit. You know, it's Detroit. And, um, you know, it's not Hawaii or New York City. So when I got accepted, I was very surprised that I got uh, Teach for America Chicago um, Middle School Science. I thought I wanted to teach math. So anyways, I went with it uh, and just kind of took the leap of faith. And, um, yeah, I moved out to Chicago and they have you interview with lots of different principals and schools because they have to get like 300 plus core members placed uh in schools in like a matter of three or four months um yeah and so they their policy was sort of like yeah the first offer you get you got to take um and so i interviewed at a chicago public school on the southwest side of the city um which is near midway airport mostly um like i would say working class uh latino uh, mexican community and um, I met the principal. I was getting really good vibes. It was a new school. And um, yeah, I got the offer like a week later. Okay. And so, yeah, I, I got the job teaching sixth grade uh, earth science. And then how many years were you there? And then uh, tell us a little bit about the transition to San Francisco. I was there for four years. So <laughs> my, yeah. my plan changed. I was like, all right, I'll do this for two years. I will go back to urban planning in Detroit and, you know, I'll have this cool teaching experience. And, you know, maybe that'll even inform the way that I approach city planning. Um, but, you know, by the end of my first year teaching in Chicago, I, I fell in love with it. Um, you know, I fell in love with my students and I was like, I need to see them graduate. So I'll stay mm. a third year. You know, I want to, I want to see them graduate eighth grade. Um, and then in my second year, like had somehow an even like better group of students that just maybe I was getting better at teaching and behavior management. Mm. Um, I was learning the curriculum better. And so I just was having a better year even. And I was like, you know what? I love this. And I think I'm pretty good at it. I'll do this for 10 years. And then, <laughs> then maybe I'll become a principal. Cause I think I could do a pretty good job at that. Mm. And then who knows, maybe even superintendent. And I just was like totally on fire with it and really, really passionate. Um, cool. Yeah. And then year three was awesome. I ended up teaching sixth and eighth grade science. So I got to teach my sixth graders again. Um, nice. It was awesome. Yeah. And we still had good relationships uh, from a few years ago. And um, it was awesome to, to see them graduate. 
And really just like I was working 12 hour days pretty regularly. And there were some policies that came out that school year about the number of grades you had to enter in the grade book and number of parents you needed to call, which I think both those things are are great. Consistent communication grade wise and anecdotes to parents are awesome. But it was just like the amount of paperwork and reporting just like really added up. And so um, doing that for the full year, just like trudging through and powering through, uh, led me to some pretty significant burnout by year four. I just was mm. like, I don't know if I could do this again. Like my energy was low. Um, and, uh, just like some more challenging behaviors from students that year. Uh, I was like, you know, I, I really need a break from the classroom. Um, and I was like, maybe I'll just take off. I've got a friend that's living in South America. Maybe I can go teach English there. Um, and actually I, realized that to get this loan forgiveness that the federal government offers for high needs teaching areas, um, which teaching middle school science in a title one school, which is, you know, majority, uh, mm-hmm. low income classification, um, gets you a, a certain amount of loan forgiveness that was significant enough for me to, um, say, wow, I actually have to stay in the classroom. And I realized, uh, you have to do five consecutive years to get that. And so instead of doing the South America thing, I was like, I need to just find another school. Um, my school in Chicago, I think I talked a bit about this on uh, Mike's podcast, Rethinking EDU, that you're on. But it was very strict behaviorally um, and kind of one-size-fits-all instruction uh, practices for students. And I was like, I need a different teaching model. I need mm-hmm. a different school model. Like maybe it's not teaching that I'm burnt out on. Maybe it's just this school. Um, and so I had a number of friends that had moved to the Bay area and were teaching out there. And aside from the weather and like having visited Oakland, which I kind of fell in love with on a spring break trip, um, I was like, that's where I should go. And so, yeah, I found a, um, a small charter school in San Francisco that a friend had recommended me to look at. And I visited the school. I loved what I saw. They encouraged me to apply. And so I did a, like I recorded a lesson back in Chicago and sent it to them and did a, a virtual interview. Um, and yeah, got that job a few weeks later. So uh, that is how I ended up transitioning to San Francisco. That's cool. Now you mentioned early on that you had this love, right? That of teaching, especially, mm-hmm. you know, years one, two, three, what caused that? What sparked that within you? Oh my gosh. Uh, I had just some awesome students. I, th- I think I was really inspired by their ability to show up every day and keep giving their best. And I just realized like what potential there was with that for a teacher. Yeah. You know, if you're really being responsive to these students and, um, I know it's not always that way. A lot of students show up with the exact opposite in mind. Um, they're like, I don't want to be here. School's never been a good experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's much more difficult. And I have experienced that um, with students as well. But um, yeah, starting to build those like relationships in the classroom um, and watching the students like get more and more comfortable in the classroom to express themselves like academically, but also socially, you know, there's a lot in, in sixth grade that they're starting to test the waters with. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. And, uh, I was given a curriculum that I also really fell in love with. Um, it was called issues in earth science. Um, we were lucky. I mentioned it was a newer school and, um, we had a lot of resources. I had all the lab materials that I could need. 
and the curriculum had units based around like world issues. So mm. instead of just teaching about soil, they taught about, you know, droughts and they talked about um, like soil conditions and the Dust Bowl uh, history and, you know, thinking about sustainability and um, all of that. So it wasn't just learning science content. It was learning it through some issue that we actually face as a society. Um, yeah, yeah. So it could be anywhere from, you know, urban planning was one of the units. Well, kids oh, were wow. learning about erosion and deposition and do we build on land that's stable? Uh, how stable does it need to be? How do we look at that with topographic maps? And so I was like kind of in a, a dream. I was like, this is amazing. Mm. I get to take my passion of urban planning, let the kids know this is an actual thing that you can do. And I did it, you know, a little bit with my internships and we're going to learn how to do that and gain the skills that, you mm. know, urban planners use. Um, and the, just seeing the kids really authentically engage in that and, and feel like they were, they were doing real work with it. Yeah. Um, was pretty amazing to see. And it was a lot of collaboration too built into that curriculum, which I know I'm a big proponent of like, not all teachers need our curriculum designers. I was not, I did not find passion in that. And I also didn't have the time to build right. a robust unit. Um, you know, I definitely tailored my curriculum to my students, but it was so important for me to have that um, to show me here's what like collaboration looks like built into your lessons. And um, getting to see the students, like I said, start to like get more comfortable in the classroom, expressing themselves with each other and, and with me was really beautiful to see. And, um, yeah, I just felt like we were all kind of walking in the same direction and see the kids get invested was amazing. And then you mentioned that burnout started to sort of set in, e even causing you to want to, uh, you know, leave um, the Chicago area and go to San Francisco. What were some of the reasons that, that caused that? What were some of the factors that initiated that burnout? Yeah, I think if I'm being honest, which which I, I can be, like I was not really even taking care of myself well. Mm. Um, you know, so what does that mean? Like I was working too long. Uh, those first year, that like third year was when I really noticed I was like putting in um, too many hours throughout the day. Um, you know, using like more unhealthy coping mechanisms, like having beers while grading at night, because that makes it a little bit easier. And I yep. think a lot, a lot of teachers do this and it's like yep. not a problem. Right. But then I could stay up a little bit later and, uh, get less sleep and you don't sleep as well mm -hmm. if you've done that. Yep. And so like trying to just get the work done by any means necessary, um, and I, I do think that contributed to burnout as well. And like coming back my fourth year and being like, I just can't do that again. Like mm -hmm. I, I, but I still have this great charge in front of me, which is like investing these kids that are in front of me in learning science. And, um, you know, that, uh, that was much harder that last year. I don't know what it was. Puberty happens, but my sixth graders that I had said were like so amazing my second year just like had a lot more challenges that they brought to the classroom. Like they were more disinvested um, and just like harder to engage. Um, and that was really hard to deal with. Um, I also had a unique situation where there was another teacher that had like uh, was teaching halftime. And so the principal said, well, why don't you work halftime in, in Mr. Sarb's classroom? And she was a much more veteran teacher she had a PhD in science. She 
just had a very different pedagogical approach. It was more, I think, what you might experience in a, a college classroom, which is I'll explain this really well to you and you'll follow my directions. And if you do it right, like you'll understand it. And yeah. um, I was definitely leaning more on the like inquiry based learning, mm-hmm. um, asking them, you know, questions to get them to the answer. Uh, I was kind of the fun teacher, you know, like I implemented our behavior policies, but my vibe was not not the same as hers. And so we were in the same classroom and given kind of some unclear expectations yep. about who was going to own the decision making, who was going to mm-hmm. set the culture. And so that was, I think, pretty significant um, yeah. it, in terms of a challenge. And, you know, some of that's on leadership. Uh, I don't know if they'll, they will ever listen to this, but I'd, I'd say it to their face as well. It's like we weren't given clear expectations of what this should look mm-hmm. like. And for me being like still a, a very new teacher and, um, you know, us just having very different teaching styles, like we needed more more direction or like maybe that just wasn't a good idea. So she and I decided halfway throughout the year that like, actually uh, it might be better if just one of us is in there. And, um, and so I finished off the year just uh, teaching that class by myself. And I did see some culture improve. Um, there was like less confusion because yeah. they had had both of us as teachers in sixth and seventh grade. And then it was just like, it was, <laughs> it was wacky. Um, and at the same time, like the sixth grade class I was teaching was still going pretty smoothly. And uh, I had taught that curriculum four years in a row and it was much easier, you know, to prep for those classes, to look out for the challenges and, know how to respond, uh, to those. So I think that was it. And then just, yeah, the, the continuous workload, uh, just, it kind of never ends. And we got some of those policies changed that I was telling you about with the grade requirements and the, uh, communication reporting and so forth. I was on the union committee whose job it was to make sure that the contract was being enforced properly, the teacher contract, one of those parts was like no excessive paperwork. And we were arguing that this was excessive paperwork and she, the principal was digging uh, her heels in. And it just like, I was also fighting on that front and that probably contributed to burnout when you're like, not Mm. just like focusing on your classroom, but trying to like change policies at the school. And like a lot of great teachers do that because they care about the community and they not saying I was like a great teacher, but, you know, I definitely cared about it staying a positive place. And there were so many good teachers at that school um, for years. And sadly, uh, I was one of many that that left that year and and years to come. Um, And so I I think those policies may have changed, but it it took a few grievances to get there. Um, So I think all of that really contributed to my feeling of like, I got to get out of here. And like also teaching in general, this is just like a really, really challenging. Yeah. One of the things that jumps out to me is a couple of times you mentioned that you're working like 12 hour days. Like what, what could have been done to make it more manageable and not overwhelming in that sense, because someone that's getting paid for an eight hour workday shouldn't be working 12 hours, right? That's another four hours every day. Mm -hmm. And that's going to add up and that's going to have an impact on anyone. What could have been done? And I'm not talking about like you, right? But like, what could have been done in general to help alleviate some of that? Yeah. Um, So I think what I've distilled it down to are two things. And these are Mm. my, my big thoughts. Uh, around what would make teaching more sustainable in general is less time in front of students and 
more pay, which I think we can get into later. But um, in that case, you know, I was doing hours of grading, you know, and planning parent communication, like lab prep, lab cleanup. Mm -hmm. Um, All of that stuff is what amounts to a 12 hour day. And, you know, I think if teachers just had more prep time within the school day, they would get it done then. You know, it would still be an eight hour day. It would still Mm. be packed and probably crazy. But, um, you know, if you are on with students six and a half, seven hours a day, which I believe I was at both schools I taught at, whether it was like homeroom, you know, teaching advisory, Mm -hmm. maybe a lunch coverage here or there. Yeah, exactly. Like that is just like you you're in front of kids eight hours a day sometimes and then your work starts so Mm. i think actually less face time with kids which would require more teachers hiring more people exactly and so both of my theses on what would improve teacher sustainability require uh, a significant increase in funding to education. What would have made a difference if you had one extra prep a day, like, like talking in real terms, what do you think would have helped? Talking in real terms, I'm, I'm talking like half the day with Oh, kids. wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and, I, and it's like, I don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's like that in Scandinavia or those other yeah, countries that we reference. Where it's like the teachers are really given time, not just for the planning mm. and grading, but for their own professional development and yep. like doing research and like making sure that their uh, pedagogy is on point and yeah. that they're, they're yeah. understanding like new ways of doing things and best practices. So I think that's all part of it. Um, it's like it even is, that, yeah. that collaboration time, you know, doing collaboration with other teachers and planning across curriculum um, takes more time than doing it on your own. We know that it can yield better results when students are, are bringing uh, creativity into the classroom and when they are like connecting uh, the various content that they're learning, but it takes more time. And so I, I really mean that. I think half the time in front of kids, half the time prepping and planning and grading, and then you actually get to leave after you know a nine, 10 hour day, which you know, I, I get as a teacher, you get summers off and like, maybe you do work longer than the average eight hour day or whatever. But, um, you know, it's the, what, what teachers have to do in those nine, 10 months is just not sustainable. Yeah. Um, I, I often say when people say, don't you miss the summer? Like, I don't, ever since I've left the classroom, like I haven't needed a summer. I, I get summer every night when I, I leave work <laughs> at like, five or 6 p.m. You know, I close my laptop. I get to chill for four or five hours and not have to do or think about teaching. Um, And Sundays, I get all those Sundays back. That's like summer to me. And so I think, you know, back to the questions, like what could I have done though, which I think there, there is some onus on teachers is like set good boundaries with your work. But that is so challenging when you have, Especially I know, it's easier said than done. Yeah, I got my start in TFA, which like the mission is like close the achievement gap, but also don't forget about wellness. And it's like, those mm. are not really compatible um, mm. in, if you are a part of that system. And um, yeah, so I, I really think if I, I always tell myself if I did go back to the classroom, I would just have to be like really purposeful and strict with myself about like, this thing's just not getting graded because 
you know, I've reached my limit for the day and I've tried to prioritize right. And a lot of times that's like prioritizing your instruction for the next day. And yeah. like, you know, I like how extreme you are with, with your vision for, for how to be more sustainable. Cause my first thing, you know, I'm in public education is like, <laughs> what do you need the extra 15 minutes? <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know you're taking a a broader more healthy approach you know no it, they need significant time and i 100 percent agree yeah you know but we're constantly you know because i i go between the the admin and the teacher side and it's constantly this oh you need a couple more minutes you need a couple of this a couple of that no that like that's not gonna cut it like that's not gonna fix the burnout like five minutes 10 minutes 15 totally. minutes 30 minutes like it needs to be a significant shift within that and, and yeah I, I appreciate you you pointing that out and then what do you mean by by salary i mean obviously i know what you mean money but like yeah can you talk in more specific terms what you mean by that <laughs> this might also sound ra radical but i say like <laughs> Uh, twice as much as what teachers are getting paid. I like, I think one of those two things would make a huge difference, whether it's the like half the time in front of kids or twice as much pay. I think both of those could, could make a significant difference. And maybe it's somewhere in between, right? Like you, mm -hmm. instead they get one more prep period a day and 25, 50% increase in salary. Like both of those would materially change the way that teachers stay in the classroom and therefore... Yeah like keep their knowledge there and their expertise and have better outcomes for kids. Um, but other than that, like, yeah, I left and I don't know if this is a secret, but like when I went into ed tech sales, like I basically doubled my salary mm -hmm. and I, I felt like my toughest days in the class and um, ed tech, like my most stressful days still didn't compare to like an average day in the classroom in terms of like stress. Like speak to that. What, what do you mean by that? I mean that when you're a teacher, at least if you're doing it in a high need school, meaning yep. like the kids you work with, if, um, you know, academic outcomes aren't there and like that could mean dropout and that mm -hmm. could mean that their options are significantly less and potentially uh, shorter life expectancy, things like that. If you're teaching in um, in schools like that, like the need is so great and you carry that weight around like, Hey, if I don't do my job well, like this kid might give up on school next year, mm. you know, and that is too much, uh, responsibility for any one person to take on. I, <laughs> I just want to call that out, but the feeling is there. Yep. The feeling is there of like, I'm fully responsible for these kids, their outcomes, um, which I think makes a great teacher to a degree, but you got to keep it balanced. Um, whereas like when I left in ed tech, you know, if I didn't do my job well, like no one was going to be impacted like that. And if I did mm -hmm. my job, well, teachers might have better access, more access to better tools and that can have a positive impact. Um, and so I think just like teachers do such an incredible thing. Like they keep 30 plus kids like safe throughout the day or do their best to like, just even like the childcare aspect of that, I think they should get the salary that they get. Right. Not even thinking about the academic charges that they're left with of yeah. we need to make sure that they're growing in these areas. Um, like that's the other salary. So when I say double, I, I do mean it. And it sounds radical. And the first time I heard another teacher say it, I was like, Whoa, really? Like you think we should be making six figures? Like now I'm like, of course, and I'm skewed. I'm out here in the Bay area, um, where that is like six figures still, like you might be able to, to live out here, yeah. um, in your one bedroom. But 
yeah, it's uh, it's significant. And so that's what I mean. I just needed a break from that pressure uh, and sort of the burden that, that comes with that. And maybe some shifts in my thinking would have been healthy. Uh, better boundaries could have kept me in the classroom longer. But I, I think my experience is actually pretty common. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And as you reflect back and think about it, we've talked about a couple big buckets of things that could help lead to sustainability and could have helped you in that path as well. We've talked about pay, the workload, um, stress, the number of hours and, and other things like that. Is there anything else that sticks out to you as you reflect back and could have helped uh, you with teacher sustainability and, and could help others as well? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, the the last piece of this also requires hiring more people. And I think that's like more mental health support in schools for students and for teachers. Um, I don't know exactly what it would look like, but um, when I think about the stuff that burnt me out, it was like also behavior issues and like waking up in the morning, not knowing what type of craziness you're going to get from students. And the students that are acting out the most are dealing with the most emotional trauma or, mm-hmm. or issues. And, um, you know, like that does take a toll on teachers, um, just interacting with students. It's like secondhand trauma almost. And that disrupts the class. Um, that also took an emotional toll. Like, wow, I, I'm not able to keep my class going because I'm not able to like manage this other student's behavior. Yeah. Um, and I know sending a kid out of the classroom is like not great, but sometimes kids do just need to take a break and get emotional support. But we had like one counselor at our school, um, in San Francisco, we had no counselors at our school, or at least very rarely, uh, in Chicago of like 900 students. Um, and so I think having a greater mental health support system within schools could also yield some huge um, uh, benefits for teachers being able to stay in the classroom, like knowing that they're not alone because teachers really wear so many hats. And one of those is like checking in with a kid at the end of, yeah. of class, which, um, you know, is, is definitely a good idea. See how a kid's doing, especially if they're acting out. But, you know, they might need a lot more support than that. And the teacher doesn't feel like they can give it or it's, you know, they're not trained to give it. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I think that's the third uh, thesis that I have yeah. that it could could make a difference for um, teachers being able to stay in the classroom longer. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Eric. It's time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? Oh my gosh! A big thank you to anyone that is still in the classroom. Um, that's amazing. If you have figured it out how to do this sustainably, please keep doing it as long as you can. And if you are really struggling and you're deciding whether or not you should stay in the classroom, um, you don't have to be a martyr. This mm-hmm. is a systemic issue and um, the classroom can be there once you take care of yourself. Um, but don't put it all on yourself. So I think that's what I'd like to, to wrap up with. Perfect. Before we end, though, who do you want to give a shout out to? Well, I already uh, shouted out Mike Dunn. Um, So I got to shout out my partner, Sabine, uh, who is currently teaching high school math right now as we speak. 
Um, aside from just her being a wonderful partner, she's still doing the damn thing as well in the classroom <laughs> and making, making a difference for kids. I'm so excited. I actually get to go and train uh, the school that she teaches at in her classroom on Soundtrap later this afternoon. Um, So that's going to be a really cool connection. It's actually the old charter school that I taught at is where she now teaches at the high school. So she had a mutual friend there that kind of recruited her as well. And I just endorsed it. But um, yeah, excited to do that. Cool. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but I'm going to link the podcast episode from Rethinking EDU, um, you know, with Mike and you were on there and I was on there, Janine, yes. Julie, and who who was the other guy that was on there? Andy Alcaraz. Yep. And Andy. Um, and it was a great conversation. In that conversation, we get into a lot of TFA and amongst other things, because within that mini series, we were talking about teacher prep programs. And that was a really insightful conversation. And it went about double as long as this one. So we really got into it. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and all of your insight. Listeners, thank you for joining in on the Diving Deep EDU podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe, rate, review, share it out. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.